No, but another one of those stereotypes is, is that we as Christians fall into is the idea that the church was great for like the first 30 years, you know, or 10 years or whatever. And then it all went apostate. It all became Roman Catholic. And then it was, there was just basically no church until Martin Luther came along or John Wesley came along, depending on your particular faith tradition, right? But um, uh, that's really not true. It's really not true. In fact, uh, the great historian Philip Schaff says that the Reformation was the greatest accomplishment of the medieval church. That, that, and, and one of the things we're going to be looking at is how, and we've been seeing this all the, all the lead up that we've been seeing, how these doctr- doctrinal developments and struggles for purity, wrestling with questions like the relationship of church and state and, um, and, and, and all those things, um, ultimately leads up to the Reformation. Um, so the Reformation was not a, just a bolt of lightning out of nowhere. It was a, it was a, it was a lead up to, I, I mean, all of the conditions were right, all of the, uh, you know, the, for, for it to explode the way it did at the particular time. But it was a long, um, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a, a process that happened throughout the whole history of the church. And, and so we're going to look at some of that today. What we're going to look at is some of the, what I call the early attempts at Reformation, some of the precursors of the Reformation really is what we're looking at here. Uh, the first one I mentioned is the Waldensians. Um, there was a man named Peter Waldo. He lived in southern France in 1170. He was a, he was a, a, a preacher. Um, he denied the papacy. He didn't think that... He was one of the more extreme ones even early on, um, foreshadowing many of the developments of the Reformation itself. Um, he taught there were only two sacraments. He taught that faith in God is required for salvation, that Scripture alone is the authority, um, and that the Scripture should be read in the common tongue. He was, he was declared a heretic, or it was declared a heresy, in 1220, um, by the Pope, and it was suppressed with a crusade. It was a. Um, there were. There were in. There was in southern France. There were two groups known as the Albigensians and the Waldensians. Um, the Albigensians were related to another group called the Cathari. Um, they were actually heretics. They denied the Trinity and the deity of Christ, and taught against marriage, and and they they were extreme. Um, the Waldensians were basically kind of pre-reformers who were viewed about the same way by the Catholics, but both groups were suppressed by a, by a crusade, as in the, the Pope called armies to go in and kill people, a lot of them, and it was a horrible thing. Um, it was one of those things that shocked the conscience of it was one thing when you called crusades against the Muslims in, in you know who had invaded and conquered a lot of your land but these were your people that just believed different things you know to send armies in to kill them um there was there was a famous you may have heard the expression kill god kill them all and let god sort them out you may have heard that expression before that actually comes from this crusade there was a there was a uh a um uh, an occasion where one of the Italian generals had a whole city surrounded. They had surrendered. He was sending his troops in to massacre the town, and somebody pointed out. He says, "Well, there are there are heretics in the town, but there are also good Catholics in the town." And he responded with, "Well, just kill them all and let God sort them out." 
Um, so, yeah, horrible thing, horrible thing. Um, and all of the atrocities and evil that go along with such sorts of things happen. Um, but the Waldensians persisted. They were, not, they were not successfully wiped out, and they continued in southern France um, um, for centuries. Ultimately, most of them ended up joining the Reformed Church. Um, by the time the Reformation happened, many of them had fled to the, to the Alps and survived in the mountains and hills of the Alps, uh, kind, kind of hidden from the rest of the world. And then when the, when the Reformation started happening in Switzerland, uh, the, the, the surviving Waldensian communities largely just joined the Swiss Reformation. Boniface VIII, um, he, he became Pope in 1294 and was Pope until 1303. He was one of the major precursors of the Reformation, not in a positive way, but in a negative way. He was one of the most infamous, um, controversial popes there ever was. Um, he had a lot of conflict with, with um, civil rulers. He really wanted to be Innocent III. You remember we talked about Innocent III before. Um, Boniface VIII issued the papal bull called Unum Sanctum, which made the argument that um, since the Pope was the head of the church, and since there was only one church, and since the Pope was the representative of Christ, and Christ was Lord of all, therefore every human being owed the Pope their obedience. Every human being on earth. Um, and he actually tried to make it happen. He tried to enforce it. <laughs> um, the problem with the and he was and he was known for it. I mean, he got to be the pope through corruption and bribery, nepotism. He openly sold offices to relatives. Um, uh, he was an extremely greedy man. Amassed huge amounts of money. He was he called a he called a jubilee in the year thirteen hundred, um, uh, and and announced that basically anybody that made a pilgrimage to Rome would be forgiven their sins, right? So if you just made a pilgrimage to Rome, and they estimate that maybe 200,000 pilgrims went to Rome that year, um, in the year 1300. They say that they had, in the central fountain in front of um, St. Peter's Cathedral, they had, they had two monks there full-time with rakes, uh, raking in all of the coins that were thrown into the fountain, just a, con a huge amount of wealth, um, they, they, they'd call it, that was the first one, it was the year 1300, it was so successful, they were going to call one every century, but it was so successful, they called the next one 50 years later, and they started doing it pretty regularly, because they made a, lot of, made a lot of money that way. Uh, but yeah, it would be forgiven of your sins if you came as a pilgrim to, Jerusalem, to, to Rome. Um, he, he got, like I said, he got, in he, he got in conflicts with a lot of civil rulers, and a lot of it was over the investiture issue. In particular, um, he came into conflict with um, Philip the Fair of France, Philip IV. Called Philip the Fair not because he was kind or just, but because he was really good-looking. He was a really handsome guy. Um, he was not a nice guy. Uh, he, was, he was, if anything, probably responsible for the beginning of the birth of the modern nation of France. 
because he, his idea was to have a, a king that was kind of the center of the, and, and instead of having a feudal system where power was diffused through various uh, dukes and barons, and they all had their, he really, he really suppressed the dukes and the barons and, and um, used his own people to run the government and so that the king was really the, um, everything went back to the king. Well, the other great threat to uh, Philip the Fair's power was the church. Um, Philip came into the kingship um, with a pretty big debt already and a war going on um, and others on the, on the way, and he needed to raise a lot of money. And to put it in perspective, the church in France at that time had greater revenues than the state did. Um, they were very, very rich, and a lot of that money was going out of France and going into, into Rome. And Philip did not like that at all. And so uh, at one point, he banned the export of gold, silver, uh, any precious metals, any rubies or any gemstones, anything like that, because he didn't want all the wealth leaving France and going down to, to, um, to Rome, especially when Rome at that time was, you remember, we talked earlier about how England had become the vassal of France, the vassal of the Pope at a certain point. Well, so Rome was supporting England. England looked like they were going to be at war with France pretty soon. And all the money was flowing from France down to Rome. So Philip banned that. Philip put a lot of bishops and cardinals in place that were loyal to him instead of to the Pope. Pope didn't like that. And they went back and forth. Um, had a, had, a, had a, a major controversy, which ended with Philip sending generals to invade Rome and capture the, the Pope, which he did. And uh, uh, Pope Boniface at that time was 74 years old and um, tried to pressure Boniface into abdicating, which Boniface would not do. And so they beat him and... Um, with the result, he was 74 years old, and they, and they beat him within an inch of his life, and then let him go, but he died a month later, um, uh, defeated, I mean, having been captured. And, because he, you remember, again, that the, that the Pope was not only a religious figure, he was also a civil ruler. He was a leader of a kingdom that had vassals, and, and Boniface looked back at men like Innocent and even Gregory the, Gregory the Great, and he wanted to be like those guys, but he didn't have the personal piety. He didn't have the personal impressiveness um, to pull it off. And as a result, he not only did he fail, but he brought the he brought the papacy itself into great disrepute. Um, after that, it did huge damage to the papacy. The result of it was that the, after, after Boniface, pretty shortly after that, the French kings, being much more powerful now, um, moved the papacy to Avignon in France. They, uh, they had their own cardinals and their own that elected a new pope that served in Avignon, and they had the power to enforce it, and so they just said, nah, the papacy's not going to be in Rome anymore, it's going to be in Avignon. And it was for um, almost a, almost a, a century um, that they had, that they had, the, the Pope was was in. They call it the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the uh, the 
it went on, it was, again, it was a scandal that because it was, it was transparently the case that the, that the Pope was being controlled by the King of France. Um, and that went on through most of the 14th century until finally the Italian bishops, uh, having recovered some of, their, some of their, uh, their wealth and prestige from the past, decided they weren't going to do it that way anymore. They were going to elect their own, they were going to elect the new Pope themselves. And so they did. They elected a man, the Pope. But the King of France didn't give up. He elected his own man. They elected their own man, the, the Pope. And so then for about 20 years after that, there were two popes. And all through Europe, all through the Christian world, every bishop and cardinal would line up as a supporter of either the French pope or the Italian pope. No, you couldn't decide. They had two popes. So they called it, that was called the Great Schism. So they, so they called a council, uh, the Council of Pisa in, uh, well, that would have been towards the end of the 1300s, 13. I don't know, end of the 1300s, they called it, they called a council. They said, and the, the council came to the agreement that both of the existing popes would abdicate, and they elected a new pope. They elected a new pope, but both of the existing popes refused to abdicate. So then there were three, <laughs> and Christendom could not decide on which of these three was the legitimate pope for another 20 years or so, 10 years or so. Until finally the Council of Constance, um, and the Council of Constance in 1415 finally did resolve it, again insisted, and this time quite strongly, and got previous agreement that, that all of the existing popes would, would abdicate and the council would elect a new pope, and this time it finally stu stuck, and they were back to only having one pope. But in the meantime, the, I mean, so for a century, for oh, almost a century, there was first either a French pope, which I mean the whole papacy is built on the primacy of the Roman see. The whole thing is at the Bishop of Rome and all of that. And so to move it to Avignon undercuts the whole argument for having a papacy in the first place. And then you add to that the fact that for some 20 years you had two and then even for a while you had three. Uh, it became quite fashionable to make fun of the papacy through this period, and a lot of people did. You know the name Dante Alighieri, who wrote the Divine Comedy, um, pur uh, Hell, Purgatory, Paradise, one of the greatest works of literature the of, the, of the Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages. It is a fantastic piece of work, um, some said that it taught Europe to be Christian um, because the work focuses a great deal on internal piety, motivations. When you're going through hell and he's talking to this people and he starts seeing the very subtle ways that all these sinners in hell are justifying their own sin and putting the blame on other people, uh, minimizing and deflecting, and then you get to purgatory and you see people struggling with sin in a true internal sense. Christianity not being just about outward ceremonies and rituals, but about the inner state of the heart. Uh, that's, that's the divine comedy. It is an incredible work. Um, it is the work that basically invented um, the Italian language. The modern Italian language was fixed into place by the, by, the, by the comedy, much in the same way as the English language was fixed in place by the King James Version of the Bible. Um, 
I raise this because we think of the Divine Comedy as a very Catholic work, probably. Um, but Dante Alighieri passionately hated the Pope and thought it, the whole office should be gotten rid of. Um, Dante was from, from Florence, and there was a, there was a conflict in Florence between uh, the, the two, uh, first of all, between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, which were two factions that were all through Italian politics and, and finally settled down. The, the, the Guelphs beat the Ghibellines and the Guelphs themselves split into two factions, the whites and the blacks. Um, and um, and uh, Dante was part of the whites, that faction. Well, Pope Boniface VIII negotiated a, a treaty between the two and um, sent one of his supporters, and, and the two sides agreed that they talked to the supporter, they talked to this, this leader that was going to come and negotiate between them. Well, as soon as the leader got there, he betrayed uh, Dante's side of the faction, imprisoned and executed a great many of them, including most of Dante's family, um, basically just betrayed them, broke his promise and lied and supported one side over the other. That was the sort of thing Boniface was known for. Um, Boniface engineered the whole thing. Dante happened to be out on uh, 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 traveling at the time and so was not imprisoned or killed, um, but most of his family was and as a result hated the papacy intensely and criticizes the papacy intensely in the Divine Comedy. Um, it was uh, the Divine Comedy, I, I mentioned it as a precursor to the Reformation because it was one of the works that made it intellectually acceptable to criticize the papacy. Um, he, actually puts, he actually puts Boniface in, in hell. Um, uh, 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 Dante, and, Dante and Virgil come across Boniface at one point in hell. Now you might say, how could, Don, how could Boniface be in hell when Boniface was still alive? And, and Virgil's answer to that is that some people are just so evil that God takes them to hell early and occupies their body with a demon. <laughs> and that's what he said happened to Boniface. That Boniface was, I mean, you know, when you're writing a book about hell, it's a good opportunity to take shots at your enemies. And, and, uh, and Dante did. But um, anyway, if you, if you get a chance to read the Divine Comedy, I highly recommend it. It is, it is a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. But anyway... Um, so, so Dante Alighieri, um, now, now Alighieri's, his solution was Caesaropapism. Remember we talked about that when we talked about the Eastern Church. Caesaropapism is the idea that the emperor should be the head of the church. And that was his idea, that the emperor, the head of the Holy Roman Empire, he should be the head of the church. Um, in his mind, a secular ruler would be a much more moderating force than a, than a purely religious ruler, that all the bishops and everybody ought to be. And that was a very common position throughout the 14th century. Even a lot of the reformers, that was basically Luther's position. Luther's position would be that the church should be subservient to the state. Um, it took Calvin and, and then the experience of the English reformers, the, the whole civil war and, and, and all of that, and then ultimately America to come to the conclusion of the separation of the church and, church and state, that neither should be supreme over the other, that they should just be separate, you know, that they should have separate roles and separate, separate positions and not interfere with each other. Um, 
Others, others uh, famous writers who advocated similar things, there were pamphleteers that were very famous, a man named Pierre Dubois, who was a French writer, French scholar. Um, he was um, uh, supported by Philip the, Philip the Fair, uh, so it was during that period. So obviously he advocated for the supremacy of kings over the church um, because his bills were being paid by Philip the Fair. But it, he, was, he was a brilliant man and, and, and uh, appeared to really believe it. Another one was um, Marsiglius of Padua, who wrote? Who not only who not only wrote on ecclesiastical matters. He was a he was a, a scholar in Italy. Wrote probably the most important treatise on political philosophy through this whole period. Uh, an early advocate for republicanism, um, the idea that people ought to elect representatives, um, and that that power ought to flow up from the people instead of down from the king or the emperor. Um, so a precursor to. Um, our own founding fathers and the uh, political theory that founded this country. And then Occam, Occam the schoolman. Um, Occam was a, uh, was a monk, uh, a German, and uh, I think he was a German. Anyway, Occam was a, a, a brilliant man uh, um, and uh, uh, one who taught, he taught um, that the papacy wasn't necessary. That he, he didn't think it was necessarily wrong, but he didn't think you actually needed to have a papacy that it wasn't to the essence of the church. Um, they taught that popes and councils can err and have erred, which by this time was uh, not the doctrine. And, there, and I mean, it was pretty tough to, you know, when you had one council saying another council was wrong, then how do you say that no council can err? But they did. <laughs> and, uh, so it got increasingly, you know, when one, when one pope declares the doctrine of papal infallibility, and the next pope declares that the doctrine of papal infallibility is a lie of Satan, well, how do you continue to maintain the doctrine of papal infallibility, you know? Because one of those guys was wrong, <laughs> you know? So, but they, kind of, they still held on to it. And, uh, but it'd be just intellectually, through this whole period, um, a lot of refugees are coming from, a lot of refugees are coming from the East, there's a, there's a major a resurgence, what would become known ultimately as the Renaissance. There's a major resurgence in interest in classical languages. People are starting to get interested in reading the Bible in the original languages instead of just the translations. The Vulgate was the, the, the main Latin translation, which probably was a pretty good translation at first, but was completely under the control of the Catholic Church and had been altered in many ways. We absolutely know that now. As a classic example, um, in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.16, Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the Vulgate, that reads, it reads she shall bruise your head. She which was interpreted as Mary. Mary is the one who crushes the head of the serpent, not Jesus. So, um, in support of the cult of Mary, of course. And there were a lot of other changes, like things that had been, the word repentance had been changed to penance, for example, so that rather than repentance being required of Christians, the sacrament of penance was required of Christians. You had to go through that whole ceremony. Um, so, things like that. Um, so, so, so people, are, when they start becoming exposed to the Greek language again, they say, well, now that scholars were learning Greek, why don't we actually read the Bible in Greek? And then they were starting to find some of these things out, right? Um, 
There were a lot of, um, like I said, a lot of critiques through this period that were aimed at the institution of the papacy and the, and the whole clerical institution and how corrupt and greedy and um, um, nepotistic it had become. Nepotism, you all know what that means? The word actually comes from the word for nephew. And it comes from the very common practice in those days of popes making their nephews cardinals. Popes weren't supposed to have kids. They were supposed to be celibate. Lots of popes did have kids. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but they certainly had nephews, and 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 a, a bishopric came with a lot of money, and so they would they would just appoint family members to bishoprics, even when they were just little kids, when they were four or five years old. And um, the common thing was you may, you may have heard the term vicar, which sort of just sounds like it's a generic term for clergy uh, in England or so forth. Um, but what it actually means. A vicar is one who serves in the place of another. So a vicar is one... So you would be given a particular... Um, uh, what, what would be called a living, which would mean here was an area, this was a, 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 a diocese or a, um, a, a, a particular territory that you had, the right to, you, you had the right to be the priest for that territory and therefore to collect all the tithes. But you didn't know anything about being a priest or maybe you were a five-year-old or maybe you just didn't want to be a priest. And so what would you do? You would hire someone. You would hire someone local to actually do the work of being a, a, a priest. And he would be called a vicar, somebody who was serving in your place. So that a guy might have dozens of these, might have dozens of actual pulpits that were his you would collect them like you would collect like houses you're renting out or you know like you're sharecropping or something it was just a way of making money that's all and you know then you'd hire a guy and the guy that they would hire maybe he didn't know any latin at all maybe he had no idea how to be a priest um but you know you teach him a few phrases and because the thing that matters is you do the ceremonies right that's what's important so you teach him to get up there and say hocus corpus you know hocus pocus they would mispronounce it that's where that expression comes from by the way um and um and uh you know do the magic spells and then the people would have their sacraments and that was the only thing that really mattered um everybody knew the church needed to be reformed there wasn't everybody knew that um, the story of the Reformation, and we'll get to this later, uh, the story of the Reformation and the Roman response to the Reformation is really the story of everybody knowing the church needed to be reformed and certain parts of the church going one way with that Reformation and other parts of the church going other ways with that Reformation. Um, but again, everybody knew there was a problem. Hardly anybody with a straight face could defend the papacy and the clerical establishment in the 14th century. It was openly, um, it was like the 9th century, or the, or the 10th century was like that too. Um, um, murder, bribery, open homosexuality, uh, 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 having mistresses, and I mean, it was just common, you know, uh, it was it was a really ugly time. Uh, the greed was, you know, when the the popes would live a just lavish, you know, lives that would rival that of most kings. <laughs> you know, few kings had the kind of wealth that the pope had, and so you know, claiming to be a champion of the people and the defender of the faith, while being carried about by slaves on litters with gore, you know, spilling gemstones around. It was just it was ridiculous, you know. Uh, 
at times when people are starving to death and they're just feasting and, you know, it was just a horrible time. So like I said, it was throughout this period, all of the stereotypes, all of the worst stereotypes you hear of the Roman Catholic Church right in here. <laughs> that, was, that was it. Um, there were some who dug deeper, though, rather than simply protesting the institution and the corruption of the institution, started to look at the underlying doctrine. And the two most important figures here are John Wycliffe and Jan Hus. John Wycliffe of England and Jan Hus, or, or John Hus of Bohemia. John Wycliffe was a professor in, in, uh, at Oxford, 1320 to 1384. He was, a, he was a professor and he was a preacher. Uh, he translated the Bible into English. He did have help. Um, some of it was done from the Latin. No, excuse me, that was, yeah, no, that was, that was Wycliffe. Wycliffe was an early champion of English translations and paved the way in a lot of, we have today the Wycliffe Society, you know, that follows in. Wycliffe's translation isn't actually all that good, and it's not really used. Um, so it was more the idea of it that was huge. And the reason it wasn't very good was because a lot of it was done from the Latin instead of from the original Greek and Hebrew. Uh, still, the principle and the idea that the people ought to have the Bible to be read in their own, their own language was a powerful one that Wycliffe championed in a lot of ways. Um, he taught a lot of doctrines that would anticipate the Reformation. He uh, 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 taught predestination, the inerrancy of scriptures, the sufficiency of scriptures, the need to read the Bible in the t- common tongue. He was opposed to monasticism. He thought all the property of the church ought to be turned over to the state. Now, this is interesting because, like, if somebody came along and proposed that today, you'd say they were communists or <laughs> they're probably Marxists, right? It would, there would be a huge outcry. But when you consider that a third of the land in England was owned by the church, and it was used mostly to support the lavish and corrupt lifestyles of the bishops and cardinals who had no interest in the spiritual welfare of the people, for the most part, um, the, 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 the fri- the, uh, England in particular was a swarm with friars. We talked about friars before. Um, a friar is, uh, uh, is different than a monk. A monk lives in a monastery. He lives in an established community, right? A friar travels around. He doesn't, he doesn't have an established place. It just means brother. Um, they're, part, they're part of uh, the mendicant, um, the mendicant uh, orders like uh, um, the Franciscans or the Dominicans that weren't supposed to, they were supposed to travel around um, and see to the spiritual needs of people, um, the way it developed was that an awful lot of, of ignorant, lazy, uh, drunken, gluttonous men figured out a loophole <laughs> how they could live the easy life. And so you had a religious obligation. If the friar came to town, people would have to put him up and feed him. And... Um, and so these, they were just swarming through England. When you see, when you have in your mind the, the picture, the, the, the stereotype of a friar, like Friar Tuck, what do you see? Great big guy, right? <laughs> yeah. 
at a time when a lot of people were scraping by and struggling to feed their families, you'd have this guy who'd just show up and he'd want to stay at your house for a couple of weeks and eat all your food and drink all your beer and harass your wife and daughter while you were trying to outwork. And you had a religious obligation to take care of this guy. And England was swarming with him. And you couldn't, and the civil government couldn't do anything about him. It was illegal. It was, it was uh, uh, somebody who was a clergyman could not be charged with a crime in civil courts. Actual bandits would bribe bishops to make them priests so that they could not be charged with crimes. It happened. It happened a lot. So you could see in that environment why it is that Wycliffe would say, just get that all of the monasteries need to be shut down. <laughs> all, of the, all of the church lands need to be turned over to the state. That's a pretty good argument for it, actually. Um, and, and Wycliffe was very popular. Now, Rome was, uh, you, you might ask yourself, how did Wycliffe avoid getting executed? Um, well, he had a very powerful protector. Um, well, Jesus, obviously, but on earth, a man named John of Gaunt. Uh, a man named John of Gaunt was kind of the power behind the throne throughout most of Wycliffe's life. And John of Gaunt loved Wycliffe and protected him, kept him, you know. The, the uh, Pope insisted, the Pope sent word to England say that that guy needs to be excommunicated, he needs to be arrested, um, his works need to be burned, and... Um, uh, but John of Gaunt, uh, who was a powerful nobleman, was, was able to protect him throughout his life. After Wycliffe died in, in 1384, um, a couple of years later, John of Gaunt died as well. And uh, Rome got kind of back in control in England and had Wycliffe's body dug up and tried um, posthumously and convicted of heresy and burned him and threw his ashes into the river. So they really didn't like Wycliffe. Um, the followers of Wycliffe's were known as the Lollards. Um, that was a, one of those cases where there was a derisive name, a mocking name that was applied to them by their enemies, but then they kind of took the name on themselves. They liked the name. The Lollards, they were, they were students. A lot of the students at Oxford, and then the movement spread to other uh, universities as well, and traveled around, um, traveled around uh, uh, preaching and, and, and teaching. Uh, it was important precursor. Some of the Lollards, some of those that had been taught by Lollards um, or the descendants of Lollards, uh, were those that were at the center of the English Reformation when that would come. Another man who was strongly influenced by uh, Wycliffe was Jan Hus in um, Bavaria, or in Bohemia rather. Jan Hus lived from 1369 to 1415. He read Wycliffe. He was not the scholar that Wycliffe was, but he was a fine scholar himself and he was a better preacher and a better uh, uh, movement guy. <laughs> he was very inspirational. <coughs> he taught at the Charles University in Prague. He promoted Wycliffe's teachings throughout Bohemia. Doctrinally, he wasn't quite as radical as, um, as Wycliffe. Uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, appear, for example, he didn't seem to quite condemn the, the idea of the Mass, but he attacked the institution of the papacy, Condemned indulgences, taught uh, sola scriptura, um, and uh, and uh, and again the need to read the Bible in the common tongue. 
Council of Constance in 1415, which was called to resolve the issue of the three popes, also called uh, uh, Wycliffe to, or, or Huss to appear and be tried. They promised him safe passage. And then when, they, when he arrived, they arrested him, imprisoned him, threw him into jail. Um, and um, they tried him, found him guilty of heresy. They called on him to, rec- to, rec- to recant. Um, he absolutely refused. And they burned him at the stake, um, executed him. Um, but the movement which he started was so powerful, the Bohemians actually revolted against the uh, Holy Roman Empire, largely on the grounds of, of um, uh, for religious reasons, um, the Holy Roman Empire called five separate crusades to try to suppress the Bohemian um, revolution and failed. They defeated five separate crusades that tried to bring them to heel. Uh, they made a sort of a truce after that, um, but the but the Hussite movement again persisted. was strong in Eng- was strong in Germany and laid the foundation in a lot of ways for um, um, the 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 Reformation when it comes. Um, Martin Luther himself, there was a famous um, cartoon or a, a drawing, a, a, a pamphlet that went around um, that had Martin Luther holding a long goose feather pen that he's writing the 95 Theses with. John Huss's name means the goose, John the Goose. Um, and that was, the pamphleteers were saying that it was, you know, the, the, the uh, heritage of, of Huss. Because Martin Luther was, actually that was a big thing, was Mar- Martin Luther was teaching a lot of the same things as John Huss was. And it was the thing that the, that the, the papists actually ended up getting him on, was they forced him to admit. This was when Martin Luther finally decisively broke with Roman theology, was when at the Diet of Worms, they forced him to admit that the Council of Constance was wrong to burn John Huss at the stake. Um, that that was a wicked crime. Because that was to say that councils could err. And if you'd say the councils could err, that undermines the whole um, Roman Catholic theory. Um, and, 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 and Luther at that time wasn't going that far. He was still wanting to respect the Roman Catholic Church. He was still wanting to, he was just wanting to reform it. And when they came right down and said, John Huss was condemned for teaching the same things you teach. You know, and, um, and he said, well, they were wrong. <laughs> and that was, that was it for Luther when he decidedly sided with Huss over the Council of Constance. Um, any questions about any of that discussion? I heard it once that there was a painting of Haas holding a duck. And he said, in a hundred years, God will raise up a swan. Yeah. And then Luther, they have a picture of Luther holding a swan. Right. So that would be yeah, that's right. That. Yeah, it's the same idea. Different, yeah, kind of a different version of that same idea. Yep. The Roman Catholic Church was never monolithic. 
And even now, there's a lot of propaganda around about there having just been one church until Martin Luther came along and ruined everything. It was never true. Never been true. Catholic doctrine, as we understand it, I think in a lot of ways it's accurate to say that the Reformed Church is an older church than the Roman Catholic Church. Because an awful lot of what we think of as Roman Catholicism today actually was officially established after the Reformation, at the Council of Trent, in 1560-something. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the doctrines, a lot of the things we think of, a lot of, you know, I mean, doctrines like the, sin, the sinlessness of Mary, the, sinless, uh, the, the bodily assumption, the things that are dogma now, they're infallible doctrines, those things were only established in the 19th century. They're not that old. Um, there was the papacy, and the papacy more and more wanted to be monolithic and wanted to... Con- control all the church, but they never actually achieved it. There were all, and besides the Eastern churches, there were always, there were dioceses and churches, even within Europe, that were independent of the Pope, all the way through. And we're looking, you know, we see people like the Waldensians and the Albigensians and, um, and, and various other groups. It was... In a lot of ways, it was the attempt that the, the, the ham-handed and depressive attempt of the Roman Catholic Church as the, uh, in the high Middle Ages to try and make the propaganda of the Catholic Church into a reality is in a lot of ways what actually sparked the Reformation. Um, before, it had always been propaganda, this idea that we're the, there's, you know, the whole church is subject to the Pope of Rome. The Pope of Rome rules over everything. It was always more propaganda than fact. Um, and so, you know, the late Middle Ages, the more they tried to make it happen, the more they became an earthly power, the more corrupt they became, the more uh, uh, greedy and nepotistic and immoral and oppressive they became, um, the more protests they sparked. Um, from within the Christian world, um, leading ultimately to the final break, which came in the form of the Reformation. Um, And so that's the thing that we will take up when we come back. But that kind of wraps up the first part of our church history study. So are there any, any other thoughts or questions before we close? All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for uh, your continued work through the church, Lord. Uh, Your uh, uh, defeat and opposition of those who would uh, use the church for their own um, uh, enrichment and aggrandizement and distort and pervert your true doctrine, Lord. We thank you for the truth that you always had your faithful. You always had your true church. Um, and, uh, and you continue to uh, strengthen and grow and improve and spread that true church. Uh, as your son Jesus Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, and we've seen that to be true um, throughout history, and we rejoice to know that it will continue to be true until Christ's work on earth is done. We thank you and praise you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.